a sort of low life, of junk life, in several of the novels, a life of sort of fast food and booze and porn and sleaze. Was that your life? Um, I looked into that, that area. Sometimes, you know, with the professional dedication of a writer doing research. You mean you made your excuses and left? No, I made my apologies and stayed. A new year, a new episode, episode six of My Martin Amos, and I'm very pleased to have speaking to me about Amos's third novel, Success, editor of CapEx, Alice Denby. Alice, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. You wrote, not long after Martin Amos's passing, your send-off to the late novelist, a part reflection, part anecdote, part opinion article for CapEx. It was very concise, but I wonder whether we could sort of go back to the beginning with your story. Paint us a picture. Well, I think I'd like to start with the reason why I wanted to write that article is because after he died, there were, as you expect, many obituaries and analyses of his reputation and his legacy. But it felt to me like everyone who was writing about him was a man. And if there was a woman who was writing about him, she was talking about how he was a misogynist and they hated his novels. And I wanted to... And I felt like I just wasn't reading the article that I wanted to read about him, which was what it was like um, to be a a female reader of Martin Amis. Um, And so I thought, well, if if it's not out there for me to read, I may as well write it myself. Um, And so, and part of the reason why I wanted to write that is because I do have this kind of personal romantic attachment to Martin Amis. Now, as you might expect, it was it was a boy who introduced me. That's um, right. Uh, it was my my university boyfriend who I think, like Martin Amis himself, was a sort of smart ass, literary, um, clever, um, arrogant young man who I think lent me Martin Amis novels in in some ways to try and impress me and show off to me. Uh, and anyway, I was it turns out extremely impressed because I did later marry him. <laughs> and the novel he gave you was It was Success, the third novel. Um and I suppose my overwhelming impression of reading it at the time uh, as a as a teenager um was just how funny it was. Um you know I, and just what a sort of stark searing insight into the male psyche. And, and just how br- what a brilliant writer he was, of course, um, and how I think just kind of attractive to a reader because his prose is so it just makes you feel clever reading it. And I think as you know, reading something like that as an undergraduate is a very appealing experience. And then obviously it's all all tied up for me with those kind of youthful memories of of falling in love and of being young and of being at university and having your mind opened. So that was kind of the first my first encounter with Martin Amis. And then later on, after we graduated, you know, we poor living in London, didn't have any money. And one way you could kind of get free drinks was by going to uh, to literary events. So I think when Lionel Asbo and The Pregnant Widow were coming out, when he was doing his kind of press tours, we would go to these kind of talks at King's Place or whatever and sort of, you know, queue up with our battered paperbacks because you couldn't afford the hardbacks and, and mainly be there to... Um, to drink the free wine. But so I suppose for me, the memories are both very personal, um, but of course, you know, literary as well and what an influence he is, I think, for anyone involved in in writing and words. What was it you felt you wanted to say from a female perspective specifically that wasn't being reflected? I think part of me felt like a lot of the male critics who wrote about him and some of your guests that you've had on, on your podcast, I think as well, have felt the need to talk about female characters in these novels and how they perhaps are a bit two-dimensional, a bit blank, um, 
and that some of the language he might use to describe women could be perceived as, you know, a bit offensive and perhaps some of the his comments in his personal life as well. They kind of, I feel like the men feel the need to point this out because they're worried that it might bother women. And I just wanted to make the case that actually you can be a female reader and be com- completely comfortable with all of this. You can enjoy his novels and find them hilarious and find them moving and inspiring and all those things and not worry that perhaps he's not the greatest writer of female characters. You, know, you shouldn't be impugning authors for things that they're not. And ultimately his books are not about women. And I think that's the important point to make. And I, I don't really like the idea that women should only be interested in reading novels about complicated female characters. I think that's really patronising. Is it a tiresome chivalry? I think it's a kind of chivalry and I think it's a kind of... It's, it's trying to to sort of show, to, to say to female readers that you're okay, don't worry, just because I like Martin Amis, I'm still a great guy. <laughs> um, and I don't think that you should have to apologise for your literary taste. Did your boyfriend apologise? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> Never. <laughs> However, I'm pretty sure that when you read Success, you had questions, right? Questions about the characterization of men and women in this particular story. The story, of course, being about two foster brothers, Terence Service and Gregory Riding, two characters narrating alternate sections of the book, two lives that are on two different trajectories, and then by a twist of fate switch. I read it for the first time, actually, on your recommendation. And it contains, it seems to me, many of the seeds of his later big novels. Definitely. I saw London Fields, I saw Money, and the information. Mm. And I start to realize that he's really bedding in a lot of his style from that point onwards, his humor, his particular fixations. Again, teeth come up, it seems, in almost every novel of his. There's a Keith as well. That's right. It's the first novel in which Amos pits and plays off two male characters against each other. Perhaps we can just dive into the plot and then maybe explore some of the themes and how they struck you at the time and how rereading it, you reflect on it now. So I think at the time reading it, I just found that this portrait of male competitiveness, uh, male patheticness in a lot of ways, very insightful and very funny. I think reading it now, later, it strikes me differently. And I think a lot of people would say the same thing. There are some quite unpleasant themes in it. So it contains incest, for example. It has um, racial epithets in it, which are quite uncomfortable to read now, um, which probably struck readers very differently in 1978 and indeed in whatever it might have been 2005 when I was first reading it. And I think that's a reflection of just how, how times have changed. And Martin Amis, if he was anything, you know, he was a, a person who wrote about his time. So I don't think it should be a surprise that perhaps it might strike readers differently in 2024. And of course, it's a reflection of people's different literary tastes. I think people think a lot more about women writers and women characters and Me Too and all these things now when they're reading novels. But that doesn't mean it's any less of a novel. One of the things that also struck me rereading it now was, as you were saying, how many of the kind of seeds of future novels you can see in there and indeed seeds of culture that is being produced. So the plot is basically, if read listeners have seen Saltburn, it's the same plot. It's that kind of reversal. It's that class conflict and that sort of perversion of the country house in a way is there too, the intruder in the family. So I suppose all of those are some of the themes that struck me on rereading it. And I guess one of the things that I would say, I mean, this isn't meant to be a kind of excuse for some of the things that I think might people might find uncomfortable if they were to read it today, such as some of the racial languages. That I think what Martin Amis 
cared a lot about was keep making sure his readers were comfortable. You know, when I was talk about those literary events that I used to stalk him around, he would talk about how, you know, a writer should treat their audience like a, a guest in their house. They should give them their most comfortable chair, their best whiskey, their seat by the fire. And I think, I don't think he would use words like that today, bearing in mind that they would make a reader feel uncomfortable. But I think the effect is to just never feel patronised. You write here, leave the gossip column prejudice aside, and that's how it feels to read his novels, yeah. to never be treated like an idiot. Yeah, I stand by that. I mean, it's quite embarrassing to your own words um, read back to you. But no, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and I think as I was saying at the beginning, reading Martin Amis makes you feel funnier and cleverer and more insightful yourself. Again, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about the experience of reading him as as a, as a woman, because I feel like people don't say that often enough that it it's enjoyable to read him. You don't need to apologize all the time. <laughs> I think what was one of your other interviews? I think it was Sam Leith said that everyone seems to feel the need to headline their obituaries in defense of Martin Amis. Right. Why can't we just say he was so funny? Why can't we? That's a good question. <laughs> Why do you think it's so hard for some to just accept him on those terms? I mean, I think that's an interesting reflection of the times we live in. It sort of ties into what I was saying earlier about reading it now and finding some of the things kind of pull you up sharp a bit. Remembering that, of course, you know, he was a man of the 70s. He was writing about 1978. I mean, I think other people talk better about this kind of stuff than me, but we do live in kind of overly censorious times where people worry too much about what they think other people might think rather than just having the courage of their own convictions and being being an individual like Amos was. I think also he clearly, one of the reasons I think why he's such a, a boy's, a man's man, a boy's writer is because he did sort of slightly relish in being supercilious, being cruel, being arrogant, you know, characteristics that I think men now are quite um, wary of embodying because women are having more of a say. But again, for me, none of that makes it any less enjoyable as a reader or any less of an insight into the male mind. And if you're a feminist and you kind of you want women to be on top, you should enjoy how low they are brought in these novels. Yeah. Um, I sometimes reflect on the sort of man that Amos was, particularly in his more virile youth and how it contrasts with men today or how men suspect they ought to behave in order to get along. And I sometimes think, well, obviously, Martin Amos had the benefit, if you can call it that, of this ability to be incredibly sexy for being sharp-witted mm. and cruel and being able to diminish your enemies. And I wonder now whether, truth be told, that just comes across as being a prat these days. I mean, actually, every time you watch a TV series now, there is always a stock role for the young white male character, slick back haired, prissy, acerbic, who gets taken down a peg or five for being like mm. that. They don't get very far these days, do they? But I don't think anybody takes those characters down more effectively or more completely than Martin Amis himself. This is absolutely true. And I think it's interesting what you say about those characteristics being kind of sexy, because as I say, I do have this kind of romantic <laughs> attachment. Uh, and and the, the the man who introduced me to the novel certainly, um, I think, would like to think he had sort of Amisian qualities. Having actually introduced me to Amos, he's quite annoyed that now I'm the one talking on this podcast, which tells its own story about male ego, I think. <laughs> 
Is, uh, is Success your favourite novel of Amos's? No, it's not my favourite. Um, I chose it because I thought it'd be really interesting to talk about. I think my favourite has to be The Information, which, as you mentioned, has a lot of the similar themes. So there's mm. that uh, male competition between Rich Tull and Gwyn Barry. Yeah. Um, uh, all of that sort of male inadequacy, the literary mm. envy is a big... Envy is a big theme in both novels. Um, but I just... I think The Information is so funny um and that's amos really at the peak of his powers um and obviously it was it was controversial at the time because of you know all the kind of as i say the gossip column stuff about the huge advance he got and ditching his agent and stuff but i think he showed all his critics with that novel you reread the information last year didn't you i did i haven't read dead babies that's the one in between rachel papers and this one but i think this is the first one that's very london this is absolutely true it is his first london novel and yeah you can tell he's very methodically building a framework for money onwards i i will say that i think this is in some ways a novel that contains some of his funniest prose mm. and also some of his most disturbing. I'm going to get out of your way and let you uh, read the first excerpt. Well, this is a paragraph, a passage. It's later on in the novel, actually. So, But I just think it's really funny and I think it remains very true about London and I think foreshadows a lot of what he explores in London Fields. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that approximately one in three of this city's indigenous population is quite mad. Obviously, openly, candidly, brazenly mad. Their lives are entirely given over to a bitter commentary on the world, the light, the time of day it is. In every busload, there'll be six or seven people who just sit there growling about nothing with tears in their eyes. Every cafe contains, at all times, a working minimum of two gesticulating maniacs who have to be shown or chucked out into the street, where they will hover and shout and threaten until someone redoubles their efforts to make them go away again. On every street you walk along, you find the same proportion of people who do nothing but fizz all the hours they are. Fizz with hatred or disappointment or grief, or fizz simply because they are ugly and poor and mad. They ought to get together. They ought to organise. They would form a very powerful lobby. They ought to organise and make everyone else fucked up and tonto too. Am I like that? No, not yet. But I'm treading lightly wherever I go now, testing all the surfaces. At any moment I expect to hear them crack. I'm sure every era had its hatred and grief and disappointment, but we were talking before this recording about scanning the, the 2020s, trying to understand what they're about so far, and comparisons people make to the 70s. I feel like he's describing kind of what we have now, except <laughs> yeah. offline, people fizzing every hour of the day. But I also feel like, obviously, while London has changed so much, you do still see that. I mean, you do still find if you're on the bus or something, there's always some maniac shouting about something, even today. But I do think what you're saying more is more interesting about this inflection point in history. So um, it was written in 1978. And we have to mention that we're sitting in the office of the Centre for Policy Studies, which was a think tank founded by Margaret Thatcher, of course, came to power in 1979. So this is a turning point in history where there is a, a, a big change in people's perceptions of, of class, of money, of, um, of society as a whole. Um, and I think that really comes through in the novel. I think ultimately, if you zoom out, this is a novel about class. Gregory Riding is uh, the sort of patrician of the old days who's on decline and Terence Service is the up and coming man of the entrepreneurial working class. And that, I think, is what brings us to where we are today, when once again, we're at a point in history where it feels like everything's terrible, nothing works, and it's time for change. I think another thing that's really interesting in 
success, the the sort of the tramp that Terence is very worried about because he thinks that he, that's a vision of his future? I think it's a, a theme that's often talked about among people of Amos's generation, tramp fear. Mm, yeah. Terence has tramp fear. Yes, massively. He could be but, turned out onto the streets at any moment. Exactly. But as it turns out, it's actually Gregory who's the one for whom there is no protection, ultimately, um, and that all his privilege and all his class doesn't save him. And that, I think, is a very interesting reflection on that particular moment in history. It foreshadows John Self, doesn't mm. it? I mean, I would say Terence is fairly morally bankrupt as well. Uh, you know, By the end of it, he is kind of relishing in, in the absolute sort of degradation of Gregory, who's ultimately his brother, um, you know, from a family that took him in under, you know, very terrible circumstances. And I think some of the things that he does are kind of fairly unforgivable. But I mean, no, no one is morally good or bad in Martin Amos's world. What I loved about it was how they're, they're all misquoting each other. And I thought I really enjoyed the way that Martin Amos is forcing you to come to terms with the fact that we all do this. We all remember things imperfectly, but we also put words in people's mouths that they never said. Yeah. And they do things that in fact they never did. Yeah, I really enjoyed that as well. And even the way that Gregory keeps getting the name of Jan wrong. So Jan is Terence's kind of romantic interest who Gregory ends up seducing or does he? And this is I mean, this is the thing as well. Everything that Gregory kind of describes and does in the first half of the book gets very much called into question in the second half. And again, mm. this is where Martin Amos is very much playing with structure. And I think sort of going back, another thing that I wanted to say about rereading this is it kind of when you're sort of two thirds of the way through and you're wading through all this kind of incest stuff and all of this kind of, <laughs> and you're kind of getting to a point where you're thinking actually is this a bit much you then get to the end and it all kind of clicks into place and so the structural device of of the complete novel you need to get you need to read it all to then figure out what you were being how you were being played with the whole time mm -hmm. Um, and the device, in fact, through which it's all kind of eventually revealed is Jan, the female protagonist in the novel. And I mean, so you can say that that in itself perhaps is a, is a problem, that she's simply a kind of literary device or a mirror. She's not a full character. But again, I would say it's, you know, structure and plot are some of the things that have the most power in Amos's novels. And it's interesting, I think, that he's given that to a woman. I think another thing that I wanted to say, kind of going back to this female reader perspective, was so when you interviewed Janan Ganesh about uh, London Fields, he made a very compelling case that you could just take Nicola Six out of that novel and it would be a better novel. What you're saying suggests that Jan has a sort of Nicola Six-ish role. Well, I think she has a vital role and mm. I think Nicola Six the same. So the Nicola Six kind of reverse murder mystery structures that whole novel. And I think if you took that away, you'd be taking out a lot of the things that make it interesting. So I'm sorry to disagree with you, Janine. You made the case very well, but I don't agree with you. It was an interesting point. In many respects, if you took Nicholas Six out of London Fields, you'd have the information because yeah. that novel is very plainly about just two men. I also think that that novel and success as well, actually, is so much about male inadequacy and male desire that you couldn't really explore those in the way that these novels do without having a female mirror to reflect them. And you can say that, you know, that's not a very like complete way to write a female character, but that's not what this novel is about. And I yeah. don't see why that makes it any more off-putting to a female reader. The book is called Success. What do you think it taught you or said to you about how men view success? Oh, interesting question. 
Um, I think, I guess, it's not a question I've thought about, but I suppose it's so much about comparisons to other men. Neither character has success on their own terms. It's always by comparison to the other. So that to me suggests that it's impossible for men to ever feel successful um, or to ever not be plagued by envy or male competitiveness. And that that is a kind of essential, call it a flaw or a kind of animating urge that drives masculinity. And I'm not sure that that's something that women necessarily completely share. I mean, if what you say there is true, and I think there's a lot of truth to it, um, it emphasizes further, I think, why reflective mirrors in these female characters he writes are so important. Mm. To talk about the male patheticness <laughs> in the novel, um, is there another excerpt we can turn to now? Okay, so this is a scene right at the end of the novel. So as I think I mentioned before, this is a scene where Terence, um, close to the end, re-meets Jan, his former love interest, uh, who he believes Gregory has seduced, but we'll see what she says. Oh, Jesus, I thought, where can I hide? But she turned at once, saw me, gasped, smiled, waved and gestured that she would be right with me. I did a quick mental check. Hair in some sort of possession of my crown. Not bad shirt. Shaved this morning. Haven't farted for at least 10 seconds. I drank deep and lit a cigarette. Well, well, well. Aha. Uh -huh. So, well then. And how are you? Asked Jan. Oh, you know, and you? Why didn't you ever ring me? Because you cut my cock off, you bitch is all. That was the only reason. Ring? You? When? After that night at your flat. Is your sister okay? Yes, she's okay. Couldn't quite believe all this was going on. Yes, it was a rather mad night, wasn't it? You're telling me. That flatmate of yours, core. An unrealistically tasteless remark, I thought, but I said mildly enough, how do you mean core? Boy, has he got problems. Oh, he's got problems, has he? I'll say. She sipped contentedly on her whiskey and orange. Her extraordinary irises with their violet webbing held no activity, ironic or otherwise. What kind of problems? She laughed, lifting a hand self-reprovingly to cover her, her, cover her mouth. Well, the minute you left, he started talking to me in this funny way. He is queer, isn't she? She laughed again. What kind of funny way? She imitated him with her customary exactitude. You know, sort of, ah, now, and if this delightful sky urchin would merely reveal her mysteries, then mayhap the... Oh, you know, I can't remember. God, it was funny. I kept laughing. Then what? Then, and for the first time, some commiseration entered her face. She looked down quickly, but only for a moment. Oh, God. Then he asked me to do this strip, still in that funny voice, you know, unveil your treasures, my sweet, and stuff like that. Well, I was, I was anybody's that night. I sort of did a dance for him. What, a strip? Kind of. How do you mean kind of? Did you take your clothes off or didn't you take your clothes off? Well, I kind of took off my t-shirt and my jeans. And what's all this about him having problems? It doesn't sound to me as if he had any problems at all. No, but then he didn't, he couldn't get hard on. Neither can I sometimes. No, but it didn't get that far. It was awful. It really was. It was awful. In what way? This was interesting, all right, and reasonably consoling. And I felt oddly remote, even protective too. It was a family affair. He started crying, said Jan, really loud. It was awful, him crying. Him crying like that. What about not getting hard-ons? A bit, I suppose. And about being queer and broken, about his sister going mad. He said that if she went if she went mad, he knew he would too. And about, oh, everything. He sounded really fucked up. I lit another cigarette. I felt again that sense of invigorating coldness that has strengthened me so much recently. And I said, but it was only an afterthought by now. So you'd have gone to bed with him anyway, if of course he could have got a proper hard on. She held my eye. Yup, 
and I would have with you too if you could have got one. Why didn't you stay, damn it? Why didn't you stay? I was going to, but he said I'd better leave. He said you wouldn't come back or you might bring your sister back with you or something. So that was that. I told him to tell you to ring me. You never did. He never did either. You never got the message. No, but I've got it now. That was really well read. (laughs) I really enjoyed that. We don't get many voices on these readings. I'm surprised, actually. Jan mentions in that passage their sister, Ursula. Yeah. So let's talk about her. I found her quite a difficult and troubling character, actually. And I suppose it might be a more comfortable book to read if, you know, if Ganesh had his way and you could just excise a character. So she's the sister of Gregory and the foster sister of Terence. And she's a kind of object of fascination and lust in a way for both of them. And then she's a, she's a very troubled individual as well. She's, uh, you know, I think she's anorexic and she's suicidal. Um, and a suicide attempt for her is what kind of precipitates the the sort of reversal of fortunes in a way. Um, I don't really know. I don't really know what Martin Amos is doing with her, to be honest. Um, I find her difficult to kind of parse. Even if we needed Ursula, did we need incest? Yeah, I agree with you there. But then again, also by the end of the book, you're not quite sure if it's true or not. Certainly with respect to Gregory and Ursula. It does feel a, a little bit like he's perhaps thrown her in there and the, the theme of incest. And there's child murder in here as well. These kind of really quite nasty themes as if he kind of does it just to sort of roll around a bit in the gutter. I mean, is it, I mean, sorry, this is not something I've really thought about before, but in the same way that he loves to kind of get in there with the, like the lower classes um, and the Keith talents and the nasty pubs, does he like to sort of dip his toes in murder and incest as well? I don't think that's fair, actually. I think that was just, I, I think, because I think he does class much more sensitively and with more truth than he does this kind of, these violent and grotesque themes. Before we sat down to talk about this novel today, where you were wrestling with the Centre for Policy Studies printer, um, <laughs> I noticed that you actually had quite a number of pages to print off. You've got a big wad of notes oh, there. Oh, God. Do you know what? You say I've got a lot of notes here, but actually it's just the same thing printed off a Is few it? times because <laughs> I was having problems right. with the printer. Um But I suppose one thing that I think is interesting to reflect on in terms of reading this novel now, as opposed to when it was published, you know, at the time it won an Observer Book of the Year. It's quite difficult to imagine a paper like The Observer praising a book like this to the skies now. And I think that's an interesting reflection of how times have changed. Absolutely. And I think that also that as readers, you know, Martin Amos wouldn't have treated you like an idiot. So you shouldn't pretend that every single reader in 1978 was an idiot or a bigot or a racist because it contains language or themes that we don't quite like so much now. So rereading the information then, a novel that we've yet to cover on this series, to what extent do you agree with this idea that success is kind of a a forerunner to that story of Gwyn Barry and Richard Tull? I loved it just as much on whatever it is, third reading, as I did the first time. I think it's just absolutely hysterically funny and I think that that theme of kind of literary envy um, is a brilliant theme for a novelist like Martin Amis as I said before a novelist who's at this time at the height of his powers Um, and I think what he does brilliantly in information is that that sort of cartoon exaggeration so there's, there's Richard Tull's novel that he brings. So Gwyn Barry writes these terrible novels with sort of, he's so good at sort of bad literature. So Gwyn Barry's novels are called things like Summertown um, or like Summertown Regained, you know, just such, such bad, 
titles, uh, but they're wildly successful. And then Richard Tull brings out this kind of this really difficult, complicated book and, and sort of the eight people who read it, they get to about page nine and then yeah. they, they but like they start having like hemorrhagic nosebleeds all over the pages. <laughs> what does he call one of them? Dreams don't mean anything. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, just just terrible. And like when Barry's new book comes out, Richard Tull is on the same tour. They have their first signing, uh, but his book has been brought out with a kind of a binding that rips your nails yeah, off yeah, when you yeah. try and hold it. And, and he has to carry around a huge sack of his own incredibly heavy novels while Gwyn Barry's getting kind of chauffeured around. And that's it. Amelior is Gwyn Barry's novel. And it's about this kind of group of you know, people of various ethnicities and and genders who just have a, a nice time on an island or something. I, mean, I just think it's so funny. Um, and also there's really sweet bits in the information. So his relationship with his sons um, is just very moving and rings true to anyone who's a parent. The sort of, I th- there's just lines in it which are kind of cruel and funny, but so true as well. I think he says of his son Marco that you know he occupies about sort of five percent of his mind, uh, of his thinking, except if he's ill or sad, and then you know it, it fills the sky. And I think any parent can sort of semi relate to that. But yeah, I loved the information, and I found sort of on the on the night that Martin Amis died, that was the that was the book that I went to look out. Um, that that was the one I reached for, and and what I found in my shelf was a, a sort of paperback copy that that you know he'd signed to Alice from Martin Amis, and that just felt like to me, you know, the truest words he'd ever said. <laughs> your your first proper meeting with him then to get that signed book. Can you remember where it was, and was there any prolonged exchange in that? Oh, I mean, I wish there was. I wish it was a better anecdote, but literally just kind of queuing up passing over the book telling him how to spell my name so you know that's always that's always you know an extra an extra couple of seconds I think one time one of these signings we went to to try and particularly impress him I had bought said boyfriend now husband that that, um, has been the the sort of third character in this podcast a copy of Invasion of the Space Invaders you know this is an incredibly obscure book Martin Amis wrote about computer games 80s computer games anyway we had a copy of this so I bought that along to get signed because I thought he'd be really impressed um, and he thought, like, you must be a real fan. And he was like, oh, I've seen a few of these today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, that's that was my that was my encounters with Martin Amis. But but mostly, I was always so impressed by how generous and funny to audiences he was, and how for a man who you think people often perceive as quite supercilious, um, quite fighty and aggressive, I think in that kind of context at literary events, which again must for a writer must be hard work he always made it a show and he always made you feel great <laughs> to be there in his presence if you were to meet him again what would you say i think the instinct is to try and think of some brilliant clever insightful question you'd ask or something to show off your own you know skills as a reader but i expect what every writer actually wants to hear is just i love your work so i think that's what i'd say yeah. So the last excerpt, what is this still with? So this is Gregory writing. This is right at the beginning. This is the sort of setup of the novel where you have sort of Terence's perspective on life, which is, you know, quite miserable and sad. And Gregory's, you know, he's fabulous. He's handsome. He's rich. Um, and this is kind of Gregory's reflection, which I think encapsulates both of those things at the same time. And this is Gregory. God, the horror of being ordinary. 
When I see them, other people, a woman who looks like a remedial art therapist releases a soft gurgle of satisfaction as she and her colleague find seats at the wine bar, a stroke of luck which considerably blightens her day. In the underground carriage, a big man in a cheap grey Macintosh, breathing that bit too hard, is wrestling with a newspaper so explosively that he misses his stop, a reverse which causes him to rise and pace and to stare suddenly at his watch as if it were a syphilitic boil. The porter at my flat stands becalmed on the stairs all day, wondering how old he can be, as if the very air were full of strange equations which would somehow make his life add up. I think you deserve to be what you are if you could bear to get like that. You must have seen it coming. And now there's nothing for you here. No one will protect you, and people won't see any reason not to do you harm. Your life will divide up between the fear of madness and the panic of self-preservation. That's it. Feed up for going mad. I'm afraid that's all we have to offer you. Well, well, I bet someone is asking. And what would happen to me if, if I weren't beautiful, talented, rich and well-born, I would beg, fight, travel, succeed, die. And with that final reference to other people, the next episode will be on that exact novel, the novel that came straight after success, although I will leave the guest for you to guess. Um, (laughs) Thank you very much, Alice. Perhaps we can look to a moment where we bring you together with other guests who have been on for one final hurrah. What do you think? I would love that. And thank you so much for having me. And I really hope that this podcast is a great success. Thank you. (laughs) 